Welcome to Seeing Alice, Envisioning a Stronger New Jersey, a Changemakers Forum. This special podcast presentation comes to you from NJ Spotlight and United Ways of New Jersey. Ten years ago, United Way set an ambitious goal to make the invisible visible. Recognizing that the federal poverty rate was not reflective of the struggles many families experienced in New Jersey, the organization saw the need for a better metric. Enter Alice, asset limited, income constrained, employed. Nearly 900,000 New Jersey households have slipped into this gap between safety net and security, defying stereotypes as they wrestle with the ever-present challenge of stretching their income to meet their household's basic needs. Today, Alice is no longer invisible. Alice research now spans 18 states, and it's cited by lawmakers, policymakers, academics, business and community leaders across the country. But shining a light on Alice was only the beginning. Where do we go from here? The United Ways of New Jersey have partnered with NJ Spotlight to build on the work of the last decade by asking the state's top lawmakers and thought leaders to discuss how New Jersey can be a national model for positive change. In this podcast, recorded Monday, October 29th at the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Brunswick, New Jersey, we'll hear from experts in the field. Opening the program is Micheline Davis, Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at RWJ Barnabas Health. Thank you so very much for joining us here tonight. We are delighted that you would endeavor to spend an evening with us talking about the all-important individual that is always among us, Alice. My name is Micheline Davis. I am the Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at RWJ Barnabas Health. But I bring you greetings on behalf of Barry Ostrowski, our System President, and John Gantner, who is the President and CEO of RWJ University Hospital and our gracious host this evening. Will you do me a favor and join me in giving them a round of applause? I have this distinct honor and incredible privilege of driving social impact and community investment across our system's footprint. As a result of that practice, we are also delighted to have a chance to serve on the National Advisory Council for our National ALICE Initiative. I will tell you this, that what we understand is that no single individual is ever as healthy as they can be if all we will do is literally only talk about the disease within them. Rather, RWJ Barnabas has endeavored to ensure that we address the wholeness of a person. And so we also look at the social determinants of health, how a person lives, where they live, in safe and secure housing. What about their neighborhood and built environment? Do they have enough food to eat to feed their family for this month, this week, this night. What I will tell you is that as a health system that is working hard with the United Way in order to ensure that we see Alice, that we understand that she is literally challenged with having a number of issues all at the same time that literally encroach upon her life's path and thereby impact her health outcomes. Now, you and I both know that I am calling Alice a her, but you know that Alice has no particular gender. She has no particular demographic. 
She is as he is, the individual who daily serves oftentimes your coffee, your breakfast, fills your gas tank. All around us and heavily dependent we are on their existence. And yet and still, oftentimes we find that we have not fully seen them. And so tonight, it is not just about what our organization is doing in order to ensure that we see Alice. Rather, it is what each and every one of us can collectively do in order to see Alice, to hear Alice, to listen to Alice, and then to change the future for Alice. I will tell you that there are many stories. But tonight, we want to make certain that we focus our attention in on the struggles of Alice in every evidence of life. We're going to begin that right now as we take a look at the struggles of just one individual who happens to be Alice. Please. Douglas Wilson. I'm in Manalapan, uh, conveniently located to my hometown of Old Bridge. Um, the great town, you know, classic town. Um, in the 60s, developers came in and planted houses on what used to be apple orchards, and nothing but children sprouted from them. And uh, classic baby boomer neighborhood. You know, good friendships, good school system. Everybody had four, five, six kids, you know, and the norm was you had the football team at the top of the hill versus the football team at the bottom of the hill because <laughs> there was just so many kids. Um, I am a food service guy. Yeah, I'm in the food service industry and understanding the nutritional aspect of food service management is an area of enjoyment and expertise for me. When I first graduated college, I wasted the 80s away like many of us did. Uh, but the second time I graduated college, that was in 1992. And that's when I started to hold multiple positions. I did a lot of freelance, I did a lot of per diem. Um, I was working as a stringer for the ledger, and at the same time I was working at a summer camp as the food service director. Uh, then in 1996, I was able to open up my own shop in Manalapan. Uh, Off-site premise uh, catering with a deli on-site. Small 24-seat deli, but um, you know we did corporate events, corporate planning, corporate catering, and it was good. Um, and we hit our first roadblock in, uh, on 9/11. You know, it was like the catering business just took six months off. Yeah. And uh, we rebuilt, resurged until Great Recession. You know. Took him a while to figure out that you were to call it a recession, but you know the retailers in my heart, we knew the wholesale prices were going crazy, but we were resisting raising prices because that would have caused a, um, a negative. And then in 2008, things got tougher. The stock market crashed. The catering business, it wasn't just diminished, it was eliminated. You know, the corporate catering, how are management types going to wine and dine each other when 10% to 12% of them are, well, I'm not going to say in foreclosure, but they're late on paying their taxes. And so the struggle ended for me in 2010. My lease came due. I, 
I washed my hands. I walked away. I figured, hey, all right, I'm 50, 52 years old, got a lot of energy. Something else will come up. It's going to get better. It didn't. It didn't get better. Not as quickly as we had hoped it would. Because, you know, I, uh, I, I, I loved owning my own business. I loved employing people because you were supporting them. Whether it was a kid who worked for you and you knew that by working for you, he wouldn't have to ask his mom and dad for gas money because he'd be earning something. Or if you had a housewife who came in and helped out on Saturdays, you knew you were literally helping her family to survive. You know, that pin money, you know, that little extra something that helps you pay the bills on time? But some days, I'd look at the payroll, I'd hear the electricity going, I'd see the water going, nobody's coming in the door. No one wants to shut down a business, but you wake up some days and you think, can I take on any more debt? Do I have to take out another loan? just to get forward or even just get out from under until I can, well, until when? When does it get better? Could it get worse? Yeah. Oh yeah, you don't max out on credit cards if things are going well. And now in retrospect, I look back and I think, Doug, you should have just gone bankrupt. You should have just screwed everybody instead of paying them 100 cents on the dollar. but I can look people in the eye. You know, when, um, when the business finally met its demise, I was living with my parents. And I, I went from living with them for my survival to being a caregiver for them. They were pretty independent. They needed me for like companionship, company, rides to the doctor, taking care of the property. Like they were, they were independent. Uh, we lost my mom about six months ago. I've been dealing with a lot of roadblocks and the frustration of graying. I woke up one morning and I realized I'm not that 35-year-old wonder kid anymore. I wake up, I realize I'm 55 years old. There's a lot of nice ways that they tell you you're not going to get a job. Oh, it's a fast-paced kitchen, man. I don't know if you can keep up. <laughs> Needless to say, I can keep up. But I got the message. Well, I guess I'm in the limelight now, huh? Well, thank you, Collabs, for that, uh, helping us understand who Alice is. I think uh, one of the great things about this project that we've learned along the way is that putting a face on Alice changes the whole conversation. Collabs is a special organization that engages artists, social advocacy organizations in the community in transformative work. So thank you, Collabs, for being here tonight. And I also want to thank my dear friend, Micheline Davis, who so articulately uh, outlined the problem for us. But I want to make sure everybody knows who ALICE is. First of all, the ALICE acronym, Asset Limited, Income Constrained, Employed, 
is important for you to take home tonight. Asset limited, income constrained, employed. Who is Alice? Well, I know, think you know Alice. This may surprise you, but some of your kids coming home from college, working at the uh, whatever for 10 bucks an hour with huge college debt. Or how about your parents living on Social Security? Or the people who take care of your parents in the nursing home? Or the folks who take care of your kids in childcare? Or the clerks and the cashiers and the people we all run into every day? These are the folks that are we call Alice, and they make up the fabric of our society. And guess what? The fabric is fraying at the ends. Alice is also a very robust report. An exhaustive study of uh, financial hardship in America in every state, in every county of the country. So we have a global picture of who Alice really is. This is our 10th anniversary we're celebrating tonight of the Alice Project, 10 years we've been working on this. Now we're in 18 states across the country, so the message is growing. Our goal is to change the conversation in this country about what it means to be poor and working. The last thing I want to say about who Alice is, is that Alice is um, an important part of our lives. She is someone we, we depend on, someone we all know, and sometimes someone very close to us. The last thing about Alice is that Alice is a movement, a movement to change this conversation. And you have an opportunity this evening to be part of that conversation. We have a fantastic group of folks who are going to carry that conversation forward this evening. And I want to read off the list of folks that you're going to hear from this evening, if I can see it in this light. First, you heard from Micheline Davis, who is the uh, Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer of RWJ Barnabas Health. So thank you, Micheline, for your comments. And uh, yes, you can applaud for Micheline. I do all the time. And then, of course, John Mooney, who is the Chief, Ex Chief Executive Officer of NJ Spotlight. This is a partnership with them tonight between United Way and NJ Spotlight. And uh, I don't know if you all understand just how important NJ Spotlight is to the news in this state, but uh, it's a nonprofit online uh, news site uh, that is on, focused on public policy and uh, issues of, of concern to all of us. So we're very happy to have this relationship with uh, NJ Spotlight. And then amazing as it may seem, we have the President of the Senate and the Assembly Speaker with us tonight, they will be speaking to you and talking about Alice, who, with whom they're very familiar. So we have uh, Speaker uh, Coughlin and Senator Sweeney. Thank you so much for being here. And then we have a wonderful panel that will be discussing this issue. First, uh, Alpha Demelish. She is the Executive Director of Rising Tide Capital, and she's going to be talking, I hope, about uh, the work that she does to put uh, Alice people in business for themselves. And we have uh, Dr. Carol Ash, who's the Chief Medical Officer, see if I get this right, at RWJ Barnabas University Hospital in Rahway. So we're very pleased to have her talk this evening. She'll be talking about uh, what it means to be working and poor and what that means uh, in terms of uh, our health. So you can give Dr. 
Ash, a hand of, round of applause too, please. <clears throat> and last but not least, uh, Bill Rogers, Dr. William Rogers, who is chief economist at the Heldridge Center, and he is a former board member of United Way of Northern New Jersey, and he's been as, as much as anybody aware of what the Alice Project is all about. And Bill Rogers, let's give him a hand too. <clears throat> and finally, someone who's not on the, uh, going to be on the, the stage there this evening, but is very much central to this conversation. Someone who is very important to the work of the Alice Project because it was this person who came up with the Alice term. It is this person that leads the research. This is this person who came up with a methodology for this project. Without the work of Stephanie Hoops, we would not be here. Stephanie, would you please stand and be recognized? And of course, every good event has sponsors. Uh, the first sponsor is RWJ Barnabas Hospital, and we thank you, Barry Ostrowski, for your generous support for this this evening. We also have support from the uh, uh, our, our Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Verizon NJ Shares. So thank you for those sponsors. Please let's give those a round of applause too. So my job was pretty easy, just to, uh, thanking people for being here, and I want to thank you all for being here this evening. So sit back, relax, think about being part of this special conversation that we're going to have, because the goal here is to change the conversation in this country. I don't want anybody talking about working poor people as if they're not struggling or trying to make a difference. I don't want anybody saying that they're lazy people. We're talking about people who have sometimes one, two, three jobs just to make ends meet. So join the conversation, and we're so fortunate this evening to have John Mooney lead this conversation. He's going to be our MC this evening. John, let's have a round of applause for John, too. Thank you, John. Welcome, everybody. Uh, as John mentioned, NJ Spotlight um, is a nonprofit news site covering public policy issues. But really central to our mission as well is, is getting folks um, out on an evening like tonight to talk about those issues. Uh, we're often, too often, uh, living with our smartphones and, and staring at the screen. And, and having these conversations, I think, is critical. And getting people in the same room is critical, even if it's a atrium with 100-foot ceilings. Um, I, I think the networking possibilities as well, is, it's, it's a, a great opportunity to bring you all together. Um, these gentlemen don't need any introduction. Um, and I'd like to get us going talking about one of the hopes of this event is we've been having the conversation about Alice for certainly 10 years, if not much longer. Um, and I think we're at a point where we, started, we want to start uh, acting on what we know and the information we have. And I'll start with Senator Sweeney. Uh, you heard a, a really impassioned talk uh, by a man named Doug um, about, um, you know, lost his job during the recession, uh, un now underemployed, taking care of his mom. What are you going to do for Doug? Well, there's a lot, John, there's a lot we can do. Um, you know, it's sad that I think a family of four has to make $75,000 a year to be in the middle class or, or to survive, not the middle class, but to survive in this state. And there's a lot of things we can do and we have done uh, policy-wise. You know, there's SNAP, there's heat, you know, there's a lot of programs that we've supported. But 
One of my big things, I think you know right now, is trying to fix the finances of the state because we don't fund programs anymore. We're funding government, but we're not funding any programs. So we, we need to start restructuring government and the cost of government so we can actually get money into programs that matter to us. You know, we want to raise the minimum wage to $15. I think that's important. I think we're all on board with it. How we get there, we get there. But, you know, we in New Jersey deal with a lot of nonprofits. Well, we're not going to exempt the people that deal with us from getting the $15. And John, so, I mean, it's minimum wage. There's health care reform that has to happen. There's a host of things that need to happen in order for us to touch Doug and help Doug. Um, but at, at the end of the day, if we don't change the government that we have right now, we're only going to fund two things, pension and health care, and that's it. So, you know, Craig and I, you know, this was Craig's first budget, this was my ninth. When you're arguing over $100,000 here and $100,000 there, and you're dealing with a $37.5 billion budget, you know something's wrong. So we need to restructure our government so we can free resources up to provide programs that actually matter to people. And even the point on the minimum wage and, you know, 15, and if you haven't looked at this, this is one of the best programs ever created in terms of the amount of information in it. It's not just bios, so please take it home. But um, to make that, you know, that basic survival level is close to a minimum or is close to an hourly wage of, of $30, 30 plus dollars. So, you know, $15 an hour is not solving this, uh, question, this situation John. by any means. John, there, listen, I know the numbers. Look, I'm, a, I'm an iron worker by trade. You know, I know what it's been like to collect unemployment, to be out of work, uh, you know, use your credit card to pay for your, you know, your grocery bill. So you're right. You know, $15 isn't the solution. I was very happy that we were able to get the Port Authority in New York and New Jersey to go up to $19, which, you know, we need to start making steps because, you know, the minimum wage has been stagnant for decades. So minimum wage is important, but also providing programs for tra job training. You know, we introduced, uh, the speaker and I introduced a, uh, a bond initiative for vocational training. You know, we want people to be able to get training to go into jobs that are available right now that are going unfilled that pay a decent minimum wage, a decent living wage. You know, there's a thing called stackable credits. You, you know what that's about, where making sure we don't send everyone to college to accrue a whole bunch of debt where they, maybe they're overeducated, where they don't need it. You know, where they don't need that four-year degree, but they just need enough to get a, cert a certificate to obtain the job that they're looking for, but it's, it's, it, it continues on as the person wants to grow in whatever field they want to go into. Does the, you know, creating jobs, and, and we heard from Doug, uh, and, and we'll hear a little bit more in the second panel about, um, you know, we're in a robust economy not nationally, yet there's these large numbers of underemployed and, and part-time employment not showing up. And I'll, Speaker Coughlin, I mean, New Jersey, I, if I have these numbers right, 49th uh, out of 50 states in terms of wage growth, 42nd in job growth, you know, where is the government's role in creating jobs and, and helping create jobs for folks who, you know, clearly want to be working um, and they're, they're not available? Well, I think that, that what we have to do is try to create some policies that, that allow people to, to flourish and to, um, 
you know, want to move to New Jersey to, uh, to create and operate and, and, and grow their business. I think, um, to, to some extent, you know, and I've read some articles recently that talk about the, the fact that, you know, when you, when you look at the tax structure in totality, uh, New Jersey's taxes are not quite as bad as they wouldn't believe. I, I know that's incredibly hard to say, and I'm not going to not try to convince anybody that I'd need an hour. Good luck with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but I think one of the things that we can do is, is try to make sure that you get the best buy for your dollar. Uh, one, of the, one of the things we, we do have uh, is uh, the, one of the best public education systems in the country each year. Uh, when you read the rankings, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Maryland are the three best, one, two, three, three, two, one, some sort of order that year after year after year. Um, and so I think we need, to, we need to take advantage of that because what that says to a CEO who wants to think about relocating her business uh, is that you can come to New Jersey and put your, you're going to pay higher property taxes than you were in, you know, pick the state. Uh, but when you come here, you're going to be able to send your kids to public school and you're going to get it a terrific education. Uh, we, need to, we need to emphasize those kinds of things that we have. We have a terrific, uh, terrifically well-educated populace. It's one of the reasons that we have one of the highest per capita incomes in the country. We have a lot going for us. I think we have to make sure that we take advantage of that. We also have to uh, ha have a way to, you know, to fairly treat Alice. Uh, I think we, if we're going to call ourselves a great state, I think if any state wants to do that, if any nation wants to do that, I think you have to do a few things. One of them is that you have to make sure that people are fed. You have to make sure that your people are housed. You have to give them a good education because that's a chance, to, an opportunity for success. And you have to give them some little medical care because we, we, we increasingly are coming to understand what wellness means uh, and how that help affects uh, people's development. So I think we need to put in place those policies that, that take care of Alice and attract people who are going to be uh, leaders in growing and developing business. And one of the things that we have done is create a science and innovation technology. Uh, and I know that's something that's important to the governor and to the Senate president. Uh, because if we can get people to come here and to innovate in the state of New Jersey, uh, then we're going to grow businesses from the ground up. And that gives people an opportunity to get in at the ground level uh, and, and to grow with the business. And when they do that, then I think those other things that we have to offer will encourage people to stay. So if we can put policies in place, then we can grow and develop the economy. And that's what will keep Doug working. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, we could, and we don't have the time to go through all of them, but, you know, the issues that are important um, to this campaign and I think to to serving um, Alice, you know, pre-K expansion we've talked about, uh, earned income tax credits, caregiver tax credits. I mean, there's there's a whole host of them, each worthy of their own conversations. But I was talking to, to some folks with the United Way beforehand, and they were, you know, elucidating about how it, it really means uh, a re-envisioning of, of what government's to be. Um, in focusing on food, transportation, childcare, healthcare, housing, the five pillars. Is there a will to re-envision government, or, or are we stuck in our, you know, the, our departments and our silos that, that continue to, you know, continue, you know, not necessarily solving the problem? Well, I, I think we have no choice, John, at this point. You know, when we, you know we're, we're 48th or 49th in investment in higher education. 
which means we have the second most expensive higher education system in the country. And, and the speaker and I, I think, both agree it's where you make those dollars, where you make those investments that actually will strengthen your economy. You know, I think we have the fifth highest tax burden total in the, in the nation. So when companies come looking, I mean, we got the greatest location in the entire United States of America. But we have to structure it where, where businesses see that we're making investments in higher education. We're proud of what we did with pre-K. We got a long way to go. So, you know, when every time, you know, I've been sounding off on this pathways to progress for one reason. Everything is being crowded out for two areas of funding, pensions and healthcare. I want to make pre-K funding complete. That's a billion dollars. We have to fund our schools complete. That's a billion and a half dollars. You know, when you add the $15 minimum wage that we'll do for, for all the people that we do business with, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. So, John, we're, we're taxed out. We're at, the, we're at the highest ends on taxes. And we're not investing in the areas that will bring those companies in to provide those job opportunities. And, and again, recreating education, too, is not a bad idea. Like, stop driving everyone to college when we have thousands of really good middle-class jobs go that fill, go unfulfilled year in and year out. So, you know, we got to make a choice. Do we really want to, we want the status quo and dance around the edges, or are we going to dive into this and create a government that allows us to make the investments that we need? But you've talked about, you talk about the investment in higher ed. You guys have pushed back on the notion of of tuition-free community college, for instance, well, which is an area that certainly would serve. Well, and I'll, I'll, and I'll but, let you both speak to that. But, yeah, both of us, please. But guess what, John? Higher education isn't affordable at all now. We get the second highest expense. See, when you don't have money, when you have limited choices, you're just dancing around the edge. Much like Alice. Yes, that's <laughs> the point. So rather than making the investments in the areas that we need to make, we put a little bit here. And you give a little bit of hope, but you're not solving the problem. Well, I think that community colleges, first and foremost, are uh, a, a, an important resource for, for, for many people like who would fall in the Alice category. But I don't know that we didn't, we pushed, you know, you started to allude to the fact that we pushed back. I think that perhaps what you're talking about is in the, in the uh, uh, in the last budget, we instead of the governor had asked for $50 million, right. we put in $25 million. That's $25 million additional dollars. It, it, I'll take Fair a enough. push like that any time you want to give me $25 million bucks. The other thing we did is we, we've just passed the Bond Act, which will, you know, is a, is a half a billion dollars that does a lot for uh, vocational technical schools, to allude to the thing that the Senate president was talking about, but also some of that money is going to go to schools as well. I think that's just that's just a function of trying to make sure we we right size and do do all the things we can. But I think that all of us, and I, 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 certainly I think the Senate President and I, I don't mean to speak for him, but I, I know how much he cares about uh, county colleges. I think that's a wonderful place to do it. We're, we passed the bill today, uh, which would allow four-year universities to have uh, three and one, which is a, a three something plus that one. three plus one that the Senate President has led on. So that kids can go to school for three years um, because county colleges are affordable and because they do provide a terrific education, by the way. So they can go for three years and then get their last year at a four-year school. 
So I think that there, there is a commitment to do that. Uh, I think that that is one of the ways that we're, we're going to help Alice uh, because it gives kids a fighting chance. Tell us a little bit more about your uh, initiatives around food pantries and, and so, how that makes a difference. Well, thank you, because I like to talk about that. Um, well, we, you know, one of the things that I did when I got in, 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 the, uh, in the legislature, and I kind of stole the idea from my, uh, my running mate, Joe Vitale, who does raise annually have a softball game uh, for Habitat for Humanity. And so I thought I would try to find something that I, I could do outside of the legislative scope. Uh, and what I did uh, about nine years ago, I started raising money through a bowling uh, event annually for the food pantries in, in, my, uh, in, the, in my district. Uh, and we've been you know, fairly successful. Uh, we've raised, I, I think, to date about a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, and I'm proud of that um, because it, it really helps people fundamentally. Um, if you, we, we all know that if you have to spend half of your day figuring out whether you're going to have food to eat that night, it inhibits your ability to be successful. It limits what you can do in each and every day. And, 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 and I can't imagine the burden that it places on and the stress that it places on each and every day. Food pantries do wonderful work. They do God's work. I was talking to some of the folks here from Elijah's Promise, and they do just tremendous things. So, as I said to you, if I think if, if, if we want to call ourselves a great state, we have to make sure people are fed. And so my new fancy job title has allowed me to uh, put an emphasis on something like that. And so we've done some things already in terms of helping to, to feed New Jerseyans. We put more money in the budget for the uh, community food bank in, in Hillside, which supplies counties throughout the state. Uh, we've expanded the, the SNAP program. We, ex we expanded the Heat and Eat program. We've expanded the Backpack uh, lunch program and breakfast program because so many students rely on that as their sole source of food. And we're going to roll out uh, a package of bills that will, will attempt to address things so we can kind of coordinate the efforts, you know, make people aware of food waste, make uh, people aware that students, many students, many college students uh, often uh, are eligible for SNAP programs. Uh, and oftentimes don't have enough to eat. Put food pantries on college campuses and figure out a way. I think we're going to make an attempt to try to figure out how to eliminate food deserts. In this state, there are, there are places that don't have supermarkets. So imagine the challenge of being a parent and having, I, I know because I've had three little, little kids all at the same time. Imagine if you live in an area where there isn't a, a supermarket. So you're left with, you know, convenience stores or, or convenience stores at gas stations or bodegas, depending on the neighborhood you live in. They don't have the healthy, nutritious food we, we, we want and those kids deserve. And there's just the physical limitation of trying to get there and, and bring things home. If you don't have a vehicle, forget it. Imagine taking mass transportation with three kids to try to go grocery shopping. So we can, we can try to do better on that. And I know, I know that the Senate president and I have talked about it. He cares about that deeply as well. Uh, and so we're going to roll out a package of bills that span that and, and try to, to make some attention. Yeah, because one of the challenges of, of food pantries is locating them where the need is greatest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right. some mapping of it finds that, you know, they aren't necessarily where Alice resides. Um, and, and then there's also the stigmas that gets attached to it Correct. Uh, in serving that. And so, you know, are, are there steps to 
to locate them in, in you know, where they can serve the greatest need and, and overcome well, that, some of those? That's precisely the goal, to figure out where, the, where, we need to, where we need to be in order to serve the people who, who need to be served. I mean, that's, that's how we ought to do it. How are we, um, you know, since so much rests on the fiscal health of, of the state um, and, and the economic uh, health of the state, you know, it's been an interesting new, new year uh, with, with this governor. Um, you guys haven't been the closest of allies. I'm not necessarily making news with that statement. Um, is, there, is there some thawing in that relationship? Now, I know you're going to say that you've gotten a lot done together, um, but there's some fundamental differences as well. Are we, you know, are, are we making headway? In I think Craig and myself and the governor have gotten a lot of good things done, John, and that shouldn't be ignored. There's, a, there's one big difference. I'm a realist and I'm looking at numbers. And our budget is going to have a $3.2 billion deficit in four years if we don't address pension and health care. It's not that I wake up every morning saying, ah, oh, I got to go do this. I want to drive everybody crazy with this. You know, every time you run into a wall, it hurts. But you know something? Not being able to provide pre-K, which you and I spoke about on a panel a few years ago, and I said, we believe in it, we're going to start doing it, requires funding. And it's not like we don't raise a lot of money. We're at $37.5 billion. You know, if you do the millionaire's tax all the way, if you do the sales tax all the way, what are we going to do? Take the sales tax to 8 or 9%? John, at some point, there's an affordability issue, and the people, Alice, that we're worried about can't afford it. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, when you talk about food pantries, you know, they're needed in places where I live, too, as you know. And, you know, everyone just has this image. So if you don't have enough funding, to do all the things you want. And I'm not blaming anybody. There's, a, there's plenty of blame. There's a long story you could point fingers at. At the end of the day, we're dealing with realities. The pension payment took us six years to get to 3.2 billion. In four years, we got to get to 6.7, right? We don't grow that fast. Almost all of our rateable growth is eaten up. Almost all of our rateable income is eaten up in two areas. In fact, this, this coming year, the 1.1 billion that will grow, because people think there's no growth. There's growth. We grow about 3% a year. Is all gonna be consumed in those two areas. John, how do I fund more transportation dollars? We need more transportation. We started, you know, it's not that we didn't wanna give 50 million to the county colleges. We didn't have it. And oh, by the way, what about the four years? What about all these other programs that we believe in? We need to fund and help people get a leg up. And oh, by the way, as you're taxing, I don't know how many people here, you, you know, maybe those, as soon as my kids graduate from school, I'm out of here. Anybody hear that? I hear it, I hear it every single day where I live. And, you know, John, we don't want to chase our talent. We want to keep our talent. I agree with Craig. We got bright people here. But you know something? Businesses can go wherever they want. And since we're not making the investment in higher ed, other states are. Massachusetts is eating our lunch. That's why MIT, you saw the pharmaceutical companies that are head, you know, headquartered in New Jersey doing a billion and a half dollars worth of expansion around MIT. You know what I'm saying? Those are jobs that should be here. 
but people are making decisions because they don't see a positive future. So I don't want to be doom and gloom. I want to help Alice. I want to fund the programs that actually make a difference so that we can have a decent living and we can stand up and step up and move forward. This, you know, my kids live here. I'm worried, I have a daughter with Down syndrome. We don't fund those programs. You know how sad it is every year to, when, when the professionals that work with our disabled communities have to basically beg to try to keep them out of poverty? The Alice, the people working three jobs, you know, and maybe we can come up with $20 million to give them a, a dollar and a quarter raise. You know, it's $20 million. But my point is, John, I think you get what I'm saying. All the money is getting consumed in one area, so we have to address it at some point. Otherwise, every one of these programs is going to be cut, not just fund flat fund it. They're all going to be cut in order to pay one area of the government. What do you tell them? In this room are advocates of all stripes, um, you know, of their own cause as well as large organizations who are all fighting for those dollars, fighting for things that don't cost money. What is your advice to folks in this room, large and small organizations, on how best and how most effectively they can lobby you uh, without becoming registered lobbyists and having to hire one? It's better. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want this to end on a doom and gloom. So well, first, uh, here's your chance to give them some well, uplifting advice. What we advice. generally say to them is no. Uh, no, we say, uh, <laughs> sadly. Uh, no, but the truth of the matter is the, the way to, look, there is, there is no real recipe for that, John. There are so many good programs in this state. Uh, I know I just went through it for my very first time. And t so many people came to see me to say, look, Craig, we, we have this great program and we serve this portion of the, of, the, of the state and we serve it well and we can serve it better if we just had a little bit more money. Um, and the truth of the matter is, they're telling the absolute truth. Uh, the challenge of it is, is that there's not enough money to give everybody the money that they could really turn into something special. And so I think what would really be, what is really helpful is when people come with realistic expectations, uh, a compelling story, uh, and, and, a, and a plan to say, look, here, here's what we can do, here's what we are doing, here's what we, we've done to try to control those costs. Because however great the program is, we just can't fund each and every one of them as, as much as, as we would like to. I don't think any of us who, who get to sit around and, and, and weigh in on the budget at the level that the Senate President or I or the Governor do wouldn't, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be happy to, to, to double everybody's budget you know, with, with the appropriate checks and balances and all that stuff. But they're, they're largely there. It's, it's not hard to sell me on the notion that they're doing good things, that so many people in this room are doing really good things for people. It's just, it, it, it really is a, a function of having to live within a budget. Now, the budget, I, I never thought there were times when I would say the words only and $100 million in the same sentence but I've, had to, I've said that in the last budget. We, got a, we, we had one of the decisions we got from the Supreme Court, we got a little bonus, right? They allowed us to collect sales tax online. It's called the May, we refer to it as a Wayfair decision. And I remember thinking with great excitement, like this is going to, to change something, right, Steve? And, and they said, well, it's only 100. We scored it. It's the term we use for putting the value on that we're gonna be able to anticipate in the budget. Scored it at only $125 million. 
So it's hard to say no. It is, it's hard to say, I, I'm sorry, but I can't. Um, and there is no great, there's no magic word. And if there was, I couldn't tell you anyway, right? Um, but there is no magic word. It's just, it, it is, it's about being dogged. It's about being um, smart about how you, how you go about doing it. Uh, it's about trying to find ways to convince us that that little bit more really means a lot more. We got to get a good bang for the, for the buck. I appreciate that. We've run out of time. He is going to be around for, so you all can corner him um, and, and, and share your good stories. Um, but thank you both for being here. Uh, I appreciate it. A round of applause for... Great. And, and speaking of living within our budget, uh, we will next hear from another Alice. Her name is Shelly. Thanks, John. Oops. Is that you? Uh, I'm Shelly Brazio. Can you hear me? Yeah. And I live in Spotswood, New Jersey. And um, what else? Um, I'm poor. <laughs> and I'm 54. So, uh, I really didn't have like a, like a mentor thing, you know, uh, someone telling me that I should be a doctor or something really successful. Um, and then I got sick. And... Now I could, I could barely write my name. I mean, I can write. I mean, I, I know how to read and write. It's just that I can't hold a pen very well for a long time, so I just, I just scribble and let it go at that. Uh, it's MS, multiple sclerosis. So it comes and it goes. Um, but I have the, uh, the remitting, relapsing kind. So um, a little bit stays each time. So like I can still drive. But I don't want to drive because it takes me a while to move my uh, can. Sometimes take me a while to move my foot from the gas pedal to the brake pedal, and like if there's a, a kid on the street or something. I mean, you know, so I don't want to drive. And uh, and then sometimes my hearing goes. Uh, sometimes my vision goes. But but it all comes back. And uh, oh, I was swimming the other day, and my right leg is bad, and so. I'm swimming, and then my leg is like flapping behind me like a chicken leg, and it's just like, I can't do this. So, but, it, but anyway, that's the illness. Um, and it started, well, it started two days before my 30th birthday. Uh, I had my first symptoms, uh, and that first symptom was, I can't pee all the time. I mean, it just won't let me pee. So I have to press on my stomach, you know, like the Kegel. I mean, isn't that for pregnant women? I mean, I, I press on it. I have to drink a lot of water so it, so it flows easily. But you know, anyway, and, and that's how it started. Um, and then it took them 10 years to diagnose it after that from there. And I still worked. I, I'm a waitress. I was a waitress. And... Well, like for, I was taking someone's order, and the pen just flew from my hand, and, and then I peed myself, and I, mean, I got to go home, right? So I didn't go back to work after that. And my, uh, my last job, that was at a trucking company, but, but that was an easy job. I mean, it was, I was a, 
I was a, a logistics clerk. I mean, I can do this job. That, that was easy. And disability said, disability said, you can make any amount of money for a year that you want to, any amount for a year, and then we're going to start taping you, you off of Medicare and disability. So I said, okay. So 11 months into the job, into working, I got sick again. And I started going to the doctor, and I said, I can't be getting sick again. It's, it's too early for me to be getting sick again. I mean, this soon. And the doctor said, well, you can't work. I mean, you can only work 25 hours a week. But, <laughs> but it's a 40-hour-a-week job. So I go to my supervisor, and she goes, well, I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I, I've never had to fire someone before, and you're a good worker. I said, don't worry about it, I quit. And I did. Um, and then I went back on disability. I mean, I went off disability, got a job, and went back on disability. And they didn't take me off disability, see, because, you know, they said you have a year and, and to make however much you want, and, and so I didn't lose any money. So yeah, yeah, I went back on disability, and, and that's where I am now. And uh, now I'm going to the, the food bank. So, and then the storm hit. Still talking about that storm. I was living in South River, and <laughs> it destroyed my home. I mean, everybody's house, and we all, it was a trailer park. We just, yeah. But, you know, I, I said, I'm going to go talk to FEMA. So I talked to FEMA about it, and I go, well, what would you do? Because they give you a, a whole bunch of money. And he said, uh, well, I'd move. So I said, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. I mean, I wanted to stay. I mean, my family's from there. I'm, I'm from there. But even my father and my brother are in the construction business, and they wouldn't fix my house. Um, it turns out now, I mean, I have to say, I, I really like my, where I am. It, it is better, and I have a pool and everything. So... But I, I do miss South River because, you know, it's where I'm from. It was my home for 15 years, anyway. And I'm always saving. I mean, I'm saving right now for house insurance. And I pay $400 a year. And I've already saved 300 And it's not even due till January. So I'm always saving for something. My, my car, when I was still driving... And I was meeting my uncle and his wife for lunch in South River, and, and I went there, and I got into a, an accident, a fender bender. No one got hurt or anything. And uh, I, I just backed up my car, and this, I, mean, I think it was a setup, because the woman behind me, she didn't honk or anything. I mean, she just sat there and, and let me hit her. Well, anyway, so my insurance doubled. So, you know, it was kind of weird. But, uh, yeah, she sued me, and then that doubled. So I said, you know what? I said to the insurance company, you can keep the car. I don't want the car. So now I don't have a car. And I got rid of that expense. And then the dog died. I mean, <laughs> where I live in Clearwater Village, I gave a security deposit on the house. And uh, Clearwater got bought by Hometown America. And they gave everyone their security deposit back. 
So like, wow, now I've got a thousand bucks. So my dog got sick, and then my dog got sicker, and then she got sick again, and then she died. And that's, there went my thousand dollars. I mean, that was my last expense. So now I have a guinea pig. And when he dies, I can just throw him in the woods. <laughs> um, so I've been disabled about um, 20 years. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's not like AA or something. How many years? It's, uh, well, I, you know, I don't think about it. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think about myself as disabled because I, I guess I'm used to it. You know what I mean? So, but, but now I realize, well, it's like my doctor said, you need help. And I'm like, I don't need help. But maybe I do. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't need help going to the bathroom uh, or washing or anything. I mean, I can do that, but I do need, a, you know, I need a handrail and stuff like that in the tub. But all that's normal to me. So I guess that's what I'm really trying to say, is if it's normal to you, 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 you just don't realize it. Welcome back. Sorry about that. Welcome back. And, and thank you again to CoLab. Um, give them another round of applause. These are real stories, uh, real people, um, you know, every bit of it is true. And, and uh, bringing that human face to this conference and this uh, celebration, I think, is really critical um, for folks to hear. And, and Shelley spoke to uh, especially healthcare and a woman with MS. And, um, and I want to talk a little bit about that. That is the one area, cost area, that's probably risen more than any other in the last few years. Uh, since the previous um, Alice report, and I know Dr. Ash, uh, you have a you know personal connection with this, both uh, in your own life as well as obviously your profession working with Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, John, are you are you maybe you on? Are you on? <laughs> so, so John, um, you wouldn't know it, but, but I'm actually an immigrant. And um, my, my parents brought me from England when I was three. And, you know, my parents lived through the, the war and, and the Blitz. So my parents were really big on, and my bedtime stories, the themes were, don't look the other way, show up for others, and we shall overcome. And so when I was three, we, we landed in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And I've lived in New Jersey ever since. And I remember my mother when I was five, she just really admired the community doc, the, the, the local family practice doc. And, and I also admired him as well. And that just seemed like a great profession to pursue. And my mother said, well, don't marry a doctor, be a doctor. And she set the path for me. And I, I went along that path. And I really enjoyed being a doctor. I, I, I found great joy in it and helping others. but. Um, not lately. It's become very difficult for a lot of reasons. I mean, um, for me, several years ago, I realized that my, my husband, a naval commander, was dealing with early 
dementia. So like the, the, the character in the movie, Still Alice, um, Dr. Um, Alice Howard, you know, he's going to get to a point where he, he's going to forget my name and my son's name. It's, it's been tough. But that's not even the hard part. <laughs> you know, you, you have the loss of the income. Um, before I realized what was going on, we had become victims of financial predators. Um, the cost of health care is enormous. And if anybody knows anything about long-term care and what it costs, and here I was with five board certifications, an MDA, MBA, a master's, a FACHE, or FACHE, if people know what that is, and here I was struggling to make things work. And I found myself in, in a state of near financial collapse and almost going into bankruptcy. And, and to top it all off, friends that, that I knew, it was just hard to be around because this was something for them. It was just a reminder of how things could go bad. So I found myself literally alone, vulnerable, and nothing left but fear. And no fault of my own, I was just stopped dead in my tracks. And I realized here I was with all this education, all this capability, and it was one of those moments there before the grace of God go I. You realize in a moment's notice, anyone can fall over. Anyone could be Alice. And I see Alice in my patients every single day. Once you look through the looking glass and see things from a new perspective. You see Alice and it cannot be unseen. So I'd start seeing Alice in all my patients. I'd realize, that, you know, I work in the ICU, I do critical care. So I'd realize that the patient that had come in that had life-threatening alcohol withdrawal that was required ICU stay for days on end wasn't a alcoholic. He, they, that person would be a homeless veteran who was just trying to cope. Or the patient that came in that was in a diabetic coma again and again and again returning to the ICU because everyone had stated this person was non-compliant with their medications. This person had no transportation, so they weren't able to get to the doctor's visits to see the doctor face-to-face -face who wouldn't fill the prescription unless there was a face-to-face -face visit or they weren't able to get the food that they needed to control the diabetes. And suddenly I realized I would spend upwards to $30,000, $50,000 a day on these people in the ICU when, again, maybe all they needed was a home or transportation. Could you imagine how many homes we could build with thirty dollars to $50,000 a day? So, so once you realize this problem, you start to recognize that this is unsustainable that healthcare is currently 17% of the GDP. And if it continues like this, it's moving towards 30 to 40% of the GDP by 2030. And the gap is ever widening, like we've all been saying. In New Jersey, we have Alice. It's no longer just about poverty. And being in New Jersey is a, it, all by itself, living in the US is a health risk. Because of this ever widening gap, we're, we're seeing people not getting the health care that they truly need, and we're, we're falling behind other industrialized countries. For the third time ever in our history, our lifespans are, dec are decreasing. You have a greater chance at life if you're 95 years old than, than in any other industrialized country. If you're five years old, you have less of a chance of life and longevity living in the U.S. than any other country. It's the way we invest 
in, in, in our resources. So currently, in the US, this investment is healthcare, two to one to social services, and we have to flip that ratio. We can no longer ignore it. So. Well said. Thank you. I, I want to I, I come back. Um, we'll talk more about what are the barriers or obstacles to that. But Alpha, let's talk a little bit about what you do. Uh, Rising Tide Capital works with aspiring entrepreneurs. Um, and you, you know, one of the purposes of this event is to bust the stereotypes around uh, working poor and Alice. You see across the spectrum. Tell us a little bit about uh, your work and, and what you see and, and how Alice fits in. Uh, sure. Um, so over 15 years of uh, having started and running Rising Tide Capital, uh, we work with entrepreneurs in predominantly inner city or low income areas. Uh, and the vast majority of them, so 70% of our entrepreneurs are women, um, over 70% of them are 41 years and up. Uh, they are employed, uh, believe it or not, they're working, uh, they're Alice. Uh, they're working two, three jobs. Uh, we've had households that had as many as five jobs. Uh, and many times they're coming to us because they're looking to start or grow a business that they hope would get them out of the need to uh, basically work multiple jobs and not be accessible to their kids, not have the flexibility. And so they decide to start a business, usually turning a talent or uh, a passion that they have, or maybe they've been downsized from work and they're thinking, if they're that teacher, how could they turn their tutoring skills or their math skills into a business? If they're a chemist, they're like, how can I turn this into? So we see a, a vast array of individuals. It's not uh, just uh, you know people who uh, have never had access to college education, although 50% of uh, our entrepreneurs have never been to college. And so they're coming to us, and we've seen this, this and we've looked at uh, how the, the nature of work in this country itself is changing across, uh, across sectors, across uh, regions, and, uh, and we're seeing it manifest in this entrepreneurialism. I know you've been probably following the gig economy and people who are working as independent contractors. This trend is here to stay and it's accelerating and growing at a pace that I don't think we've fully come to a collective understanding as to what this means for our country, for our economy, for our governance, for our culture. So 15 years of on the ground work in communities, we're working with over 1,000 entrepreneurs a year now uh, over 951 of them are in business. We have uh, over 700 who are actively working on their businesses. We don't provide loans or any kind of investment, financial investment directly. We partner with others uh, solely because we've wanted to follow and work with our entrepreneurs over the long haul because that's what they need. They need immense flexibility. They need the kinds of uh, education and support and access to social capital that can meet them where they are uh, as they're working in commercial kitchens, as they're struggling to balance uh, their family lives and their uh, entrepreneurial ambitions. So the one thing that I will share, John, that has been immense for us, uh, and this should give us hope if you are a little hopeless at the end of that uh, last panel, uh, you know, if New Jersey truly is Alice, then Alice is entrepreneurial. So here you have it, Alice is not giving up. 
Uh, Alice is not just looking to go to the food shelter and pick up a couple of cans. Alice is looking to run the food shelter. Alice is looking to make it better. Alice is looking to uh, learn from the best in class in technology and apply it. And guess what? A lot of that is now more accessible than it was before. So Alice wants to lead. Alice is leading, and in the vast majority of the communities we work in, and now we're working in six communities across New Jersey, we're doing it in two languages. What are those six communities? Uh, so we have Jersey City, Newark, Orange, uh, we have Union City, uh, Elizabeth, and uh, New Brunswick. Ha ha, hi ah. New Brunswick, we're new in New Brunswick. Uh, we work in partnership with long-standing groups and organizations who are doing that outreach to communities that uh, typically don't even consider themselves entrepreneurs. And that word entrepreneur itself is kind of synonymous now with your know, Mark Zuckerberg types or you know the, the guy with the hoodie on the uh, college campus. But the reality is actually the entrepreneur, the ones that are like looking to solve problems we find are that mom who's working extra shifts and saying, I can't model this for my children. Uh, I need a legacy. I need something that we can own as a family, whether it's that pizza parlor or that catering business or it's in health. So the reality is that's the ambition that is grounding so many of our communities and the lack of access to financial capital to help them grow, the lack of procurement opportunities, let alone actually being visible. This is why I'm so passionate about Alice and kudos to our partners at the United Way for doing this because it's getting past the invisibility factor to say, actually, here they are. Here are their ambitions. Here is how hard they're willing to work. Uh, and now it's up to us to really figure out what are we investing in? Where are our pension dollars going? If we're investing in the attention economy, if that's what we're investing in in Facebook, that's what we value as a state. If we're investing in prisons, that's what we value as a state. But the reality is we have all of this ambition and people are not looking to be taken care of. Nobody has that vision of saying, I just want to sit around like that movie Wally and have you give me my soda cup and my injection of whatever is going to make me live until 95. People are actively looking to work to be the creators of the businesses and the solutions that will be stabilizing forces in the towns and in the cities, and New Jersey has to model the way. Uh, because you know we've addressed a lot of issues in New Jersey and the lack of money is one, but the fact that we have a highly stratified, huge income inequality problems, huge racial wealth gap issues, this has to be solved right here. And if we could do it here, as they say, if you could do it in New Jersey, I think it's yeah, another something like statement, that. something yeah, like yeah. that, you could do it anywhere. Two, two, things that, two things that you said that stuck out. One is that more than half are still of your clients are still actively involved in business and, and having helped start a business, um, that's amazing um, that you're, that, you know, because most businesses go under much more quickly than that. And then also talking about um, that you, you do not provide funding to them, but you partner with others. And so much of that, and that's a theme that I know Alice um, and, and advocates talk about, is about the partnerships that are built. And that's why it's important that we're all in this room together. Um, and it's not just, you know, much of that first conversation we had was the state is out of money and there's limits to what they can do, but it's not just about the money. Uh, it's, it's about the, the willingness to work with others on that. Um, 
Bill Rogers, I wanted to, you're the one economist on the stage. I'm not bragging about that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, it's, um, and I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, you bring some data with you, um, and talk a little bit about the trends, certainly uh, with our first speaker um, who was underemployed, but doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily show up in the unemployment numbers that are you know, record low. Talk a little bit about the economic trends that we've seen with this, and then let's start talking about you know, some of the things that could make a difference. Sure, thank you. So let me ask everybody a question. The unemployment rate here in the state and also the nation fell from like 9.5% to about 4.2%, right? What would you expect would happen to Alice, the percentage in the ho of households in, the in, the, in, the U in uh, New Jersey? Raise your hands if you think the Alice percentage of households should have gone down. it actually went up. It actually went up from about 34% of households back in 2010 when we first uh, did, the, did the, our, our first report up to 38.5% for last year. But the important thing that I also want to add here, right, is that, to, and that's just the vagaries of data, availability of data, right, that our latest years for doing this analysis is 2016. If I, I just did a little simple projection of just based upon the values or the percentages since 2010 going uh, forward to 2016, today most possibly, if we, were, if we had the actual data, the share of Alice households would probably be about 40%. 40%. Okay. What is this, uh, and, and, and so why, what's been going on? The report, I think, does a really good job of taking you through the four po possible stories, and it's been talked about earlier. Um, number one, the dramatic increase in uh, healthcare cost. If you look at those charts, you really, it just jumps out at you, uh, followed by childcare. But the other trend that we've been hearing about you know, constantly, you know, the Federal Reserve, they're looking for inflation, uh, signs of inflation, wage inflation, so they can start raising rates. And, and this, this period has been a period where we've it's, that's, it's taken a really long time for us to see wage pressures. And so the second reason why we see this rise instead of prosperity, right, instead of rising tide lifting all boats, it's stagnating wages. But we also look and we see that uh, hours worked since this recovery started. Hours work have been flat and weeks, weeks worked have been flat. So, these, so what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? It means that this notion that we can just grow the economy out, that we can sit at, get up to the bully pulpit and we can sit there and talk about how African-American unemployment rate is at the lowest levels in, on record, that uh, you know, the, the people with disabilities are, are working at, at dramatic records. Right? That may be true, but then you have the Alice report. You also have the Federal Reserve uh, uh, Survey of uh, Consumer, not Consumer Finances, of Well-Being. They had this one startling statistic or piece of evidence that said about 40% of American households, if they had an unexpected bill of $500, they could not pay it. What is the problem? It's our scaffolding. It's our foundation. Right? Listening to our, our, uh, our, our uh, policy leaders, what I took away, we're taxed out. The only way we're going to succeed 
is we're going to grow ourselves out of this. Economic growth. And then the other typical example, education and training. Let's invest in human capital. We also need to be recommitted to the institutions. What are some of the institutions we talk about? We danced around, raised the minimum wage. Talk about that. But we also need to be committed to earned income tax credit. We need to be committed to organized labor. So it's been shown for a variety of studies, variety of studies, that the growing income inequality we've seen at the national level, and I think throughout, and even New Jersey, it's because of the erosion in unions, the erosion in their ability to collectively bargain and organize workers. We now live in what I've been calling an a la carte society. That many of the things that we talked about, healthcare, a great education, a good education, right, um, that was a part of the menu when many of us were growing up. But now, right, we're having to cobble that together. People are having to cobble that together, right? It's a la carte, it's, it's not on the menu. So what I'm gonna share with you, my sort of first step, or I've been actually thinking about these for a long time, uh, <laughs> but I'm gonna share with you some different ways for us to think about how we can address and help Alice. One thing I'd literally love to do is take J&J's credo. How many people know J&J's credo? Right? It's wonderful, right? If you take care of your workers, if you take care of your uh, customers, you take care of your community, your shareholders are going to do just fine. So what I'd like to do is, and everybody heard of the lead standard in environmental? Right? I'd like to do that. Create a lead standard for, for employers, right? where we can you know, designate an employer. You're a, you get the platinum designation because you are paying a living wage. You don't have Alice's in your, in your, on your payroll. Why? Because you're paying them fairly, right? Um, you could play gold level, right? You could, you, know, you could adjust it for firm size or small businesses, large businesses. That's number one. Number two, there's a great economic story here for why employers want to and need to and should right, pay competitive wages. While I was on the faculty at the College of William & Mary, uh, I took a leave to work for the labor secretary, and, and she's, and along with my mom, there are my two sort of guideposts to remind me, I said, Bill, remember there are people and families and communities behind the data that you're looking at. And I came back, and we were embroiled in a real big living wage campaign on, on our campus. Our president, he wanted to do the right thing and raise the wages of landscapers and housekeepers. But he had a board of visitors who literally thought a parking schedule where faculty paid more to park on campus than a housekeeper, they thought that was socialism. They thought that was socialism. So I said to the president, to the dean, and to provost, I said, I, I can build a market store, I can build a business rationale for, for you. We went and looked at our lowest paid jobs, housekeeping and landscaping, and we found to no surprise. High turnover, right? High absenteeism, right? Crappy morale, right? And we said, you all now are probably spending a lot of money trying to refill those spots. So you added search costs, training costs. And we said, you know what? If you raise those wages, and I didn't say, and I, I don't say raise, if you adjust, you see that someone sees the difference I'm making, right? Between adjust and raise, right? If you adjust those wages upward, 
those issues will go away. And sure as heck, they did. I would love to see more employers, large and small, do those kind of personal audits. And then the last thing I want to share with you is some work I've been doing in uh, Newark with the Institute for Social Justice. Okay. So many companies, and this was spawned by doing some work for J&J &J a number of years ago, but so many of our companies, our, our flagship companies, our anchor institutions, right? They're, they're in global markets. And yes, I get that. Pursue that. But in this day and age of now uncertainty around tariffs, uncertainty around Chinese economic growth, we have some tremendous buying power in Newark, in Patterson, in Trenton, right? Where if these many of our, our stakeholders will invest in the human priorities. So it's not just human capital, education and training. It's also the community. Investing in new workers, not new work. We'll get a different kind of gentrification. And we can grow the economy. And, and the reason why I'm mentioning this here is a large share of these households, these communities in, uh, in Newark or in these communities, communities and out in the suburbs are Alice. And Alice will be buying, and, and this is what I say to my, my current economic students, right? We've invested in these families that are at the middle, right? They're investing, they're, they're purchasing right, necessities, right? A dollar to them goes much farther than the dollar to families or individuals at the upper 1% or, or wherever. So what I would really love to see is right, tap into the 1.8 to $3.3 billion of untapped, uh, of, of untapped uh, buying power in Newark amongst African Americans. If we do that, invest in the human priorities in those communities, my estimates, we could go up to about 4.9 billion. So, a lot of the answers are there. We just have to have the courage. Thank you. Yeah, let me, let me ask, um, thank you, Bill. <laughs> Dr. Ash, I mean, you started talking about how healthcare system has, has got to change um, to, to look at these, you know, social determinants is one, obviously, a term used a lot. Um, what, are, what are the obstacles and the barriers to that? Is it, is it just, you know, changing the way things have been done forever? Um, I mean, certainly there's a lot of talk about it, and this is back to my point of this, you know, we've been talking about these issues for a long time, but what, what takes us over, you know, over, over the hump on, on actually doing some of these things? It's interesting, John, because when you talk to healthcare professionals about identifying people with social needs and how we could play a role, they don't see themselves as having a role in this, and they say, well, if we're going to look for these things, you know, we don't even have a solution. But at RWJ Barnabas Health, we see ourselves as a solution because it's, it's really possible to look at your operations and make sure that you do everything in a low-cost, high-quality way. And studies have shown you can reduce the cost of healthcare by 30% and maintain higher and be relentlessly focused on keeping that quality higher and higher and higher. So that's, that's number one. Number two, that, that don't look because we don't have a solution, there's technology that's available that we can screen patients as they come into the healthcare system. Studies show that 5% of the patients, and they're the patients that have complex health and social needs that are causing 
upwards of 40 to 80 percent of the cost in healthcare. So we could screen for individuals as they come into healthcare and then close gaps by reaching out to community-based organizations that have the resources, we're just in silos. And we as healthcare professionals didn't see this as our role. So we have to start looking at our role as not just clinicians, but seeing ourselves as a bigger part of the puzzle and working with different cross-sector partners, such as legal services, um, policymakers, housing industry, transportation, libraries, and studies show that communities that have those cross-sector networks actually are able to create measurable results in the reduction in mortality and cancer, um, improvement in diabetes, heart disease, and even reduction in the incidence of influenza. So we can bend the cost curve and, and it's just a matter of all of us taking accountability but for I'm it. I'm guessing it hasn't gone smoothly all the time and it no. doesn't move as quickly as you would hope. You know, what are the things that slow it down? Is, is it, you know, a mindset that is, you don't have shareholders in your case, but, uh, you know, is it the bottom line? Are these, and I'm also curious from the business point of view, you know, what, what, are, what is preventing some of these things? Because we can have a nice talk here, um, but, you know, this may not be changing the life of Shelley or, or Doug before that. Well, it is a mindset, and it's setting expectations. Unfortunately, like any industry, you know, healthcare is a, a big giant, and people like to hold on to the status quo. You know, change can be uncomfortable, but we have to get comfortable with uncomfortable and start to change. I mean, the, the world is moving at an ever faster pace. We have to continue to, to learn and grow. And when you look at the principles of a democracy, we have to not hold power too tightly, and we have to look at others and their needs and, and how can we help them. And you, you know, we have to have a relentless focus on service to others and lead where you are and, and continually have a relentless commitment to community and pull others up. And it's, it's that change in mindset, thinking of your role as different and that we can take the bricks out of our walls and go from the bedside to the streets. And, and that's part of our role. And, and that's what we are doing. And we have some tremendous successes at, at RWJ Barnabas Health, working with our communities and, and, and just walking with them in the park to get people doing things that are, that are healthier. And so they don't have to show up at the healthcare end of it. So, you know, you may have heard the, the story about the upstreamists and the downstreamists. We spend, you know, millions and millions of dollars on training lifeguards, bigger boats, better vests to get the people out of the water, when all we need to do is go upstream and stop pushing them in. First place. Your thoughts on, on the barriers to success of your, your own clients or those you've worked with? Um, absolutely. The, you know, the overall uh, health of our ecosystem. So we, we definitely at Rising Tide believe that we're all, we're interdependent. So what's happening, you know, with big businesses impacts, you know, small business, it impacts the local entrepreneurs, the purchasing power of that middle class family impacts what's happening in the overall economy. And so a lot of it is around uh, what we're seeing shifting is in terms of focus. And for many of our entrepreneurs, as surprising and shocking as it, it seems, you know, uh, for somebody who's focused on uh, growing a business community, particularly in areas where that has not been as accessible, uh, profitability is the last thing on their mind. And every great thing we've ever done in this country, 
and health and education and anything in our governance, profitability has been the last thing on our minds. We did not create this democracy on the basis of profitability. We've created a lot of other horrid things on the basis of profitability, might I add. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, point, point, point made, right? So the reality is, uh, in terms of focus and in terms of well-being, and that's why what Alice and even as we start looking at the fuller context of understanding what makes us well, and when we start looking at the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the kinds of technological evolutions that are here right now are shifting everything in health, everything in our economics and, and, and the ways in which jobs are going to be done in the future. Um, I was just talking to somebody who's a, you know, a Harvard researcher in genetics. Genetic engineering, who knew like the code, and we think about computer coding and how that's changing everything, our biology is now a code that can be changed by a $7 uh, equipment in somebody's garage. And so the reality, these are like, you know, they seem like they're fictions, but the reality is everything that we are used to and the ways in which we've built our institutions, our laws, uh, our economy, the ways in which we've aligned incentives is all shifting in the next 10 to 20 years in ways that are tremendous. And I think part of our response and part of what encourages me about where our entrepreneurs are, they're, they've got, you know, without vision, the people perish. They have a lot of vision. And their vision is grounded in the day-to-day -day realities of how do I care for my mom? How do I make sure that my neighborhood is okay? How do I make sure that the kids have somebody to look up to, uh, so their orientation is around well-being. And part of something that we've kind of been really championing in the moment that we feel we're in collectively, we call it the Earthrise 50 moment. Uh, 50 years ago, Apollo 8 in 1968, December 24th, left the planet and actually took a picture of all of us, a little, you know, not really a selfie, but they took a picture of us <laughs> and sent it to us. And that trip of Apollo 8 in itself is historic because we never had ever thought we could leave the planet before then. But we did. We did that something seemingly unimaginable and impossible. And we're in one of those moments. We believe we're in an Earthrise 50 moment. And when you talk to the astronauts about, so now that you know, we know our home, we know it's really rare, and we're all collectively stuck on it. Uh, regardless of what Elon Musk says, we're not gonna leave and you know, uh, find happiness out there. Uh, it's really here. And so home economics, what does that look like? So they point to three things. We need to awaken to our interdependence. Everything is connected to everything. We need to have profound collaboration at every level. And we need to be able to have long-term thinking. And so really the thinking we need to be doing is where do we want to be in the next 50 years? And if 50 years is too long for some of us in this room, then where do we need to be in the next 10 years? And that needs to guide our policies, that guides many, we found naturally guides many of our entrepreneurs. They are thinking over the long haul because profitability is not really the thing that is motivating them because it's not so easily accessible. John, you know, takes a long time to start a business. For us, our average entrepreneur could be in business working on her business for 10 years before she actually can yeah, say, aha. Give us an example of a, of, a, of a cool entrepreneur who may have overcome some of these, these 
obstacles that we're talking about and what, what made the difference? But give us, yeah. Sure, there are over 2,500 of them, but I can yeah, tell you that, uh, and they're in a variety favorite. of different, different sectors. Uh, I'll give you an example of your, you know, something that we all care about, education. Uh, you know, we have an entrepreneur who's created an actual, you know, she's created a school. She was a teacher who didn't find the kind of school that she, for early childhood, for her kids. She created a Montessori program that is now hiring 10 people, that is now expanding into another building. And so that's just your basic, like, we need kids who are educated. And she's in conversations with me, with my team, about the long-term future of where education actually is going. Uh, you have an entrepreneur who realized the technology is shifting, and so he is using Google Glasses to actually repair complex machinery that someone uh, doesn't want to fly somebody else from Germany to come in and repair that machinery. So even the janitor can actually be able to wear this thing and be able to fix something that is very complicated by be wearing a Google Glass and, say, and listening to an expert. And so it enables greater participation by somebody uh, who is, would never in a million years approach that kind of complex machinery. We have an entrepreneur who's an auto mechanic. We're in rapid conversations with her because as we begin to look at a future of self-driving vehicles, there is a big question in our minds about what happens to the auto repair shops. Would a self-driving vehicle perhaps wheel itself to your friendly neighborhood auto repair shop in Newark? Or will it wheel itself to a warehouse where there might not be such a, an opportunity, perhaps, for the supply chain? And we know auto mechanics exist across the way. So the conversations we're having is, does she need to upgrade her technology? Does she take her savings and invest it in opening a second shop because she's doing such a great job? And guess what? She's training other women to ask really smart questions about their vehicles. And so what does that knowledge transfer look like? Because she's educating more than her mechanics and her her uh, clientele, she's actually ed educating a lot of other people who are oriented towards her. So this kind of long-term thinking, this kind of leadership, we have two elected officials out of the Rising Tide community. And so this is, this is the way, and uh, you know, I'm excited Hopefully about it. Hopefully two more listening today. <laughs> yes. um, we're going to evolve. We don't have a lot of time left. We're going to evolve into somewhat of a lightning round of, of, of steps that can be taken, tangible steps that can be taken today, tomorrow, um, that can make a difference? Yeah. Bill. Sure, so building on um, Alpha's comments about interdiscipline, uh, inter interdependency and collaboration, uh, number one, it starts with us tonight. That we need to, each of us needs to be an advocate for Alice. As I say to my students, you can write that down. <laughs> Um, but an advocate for Alice. And why do I say that? Well, one of the, this is sort of building on Alpha's comments too, one of the bigger, broader barriers we face is that the opposite has happened. I mean, yes, we feel like we're, we've become connected with each other on Facebook and Instagram, and um, my kids used to allow me to be on um, Snapchat with them, uh, but that got <laughs> vetoed. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, in it, but, it, but if you look at a lot of the trends and the evidence, we've actually become more segregated in our communities across class lines, across racial lines, ethnic lines, across uh, sort of urban, rural. And so one of the 
and I'm gonna bring it back to being an advocate for Alice. One of my favorite charts that we had in our first report was this great chart that showed Alice's budget lines. Housing, health insurance, okay? uh, childcare. And the first column next to it showed, these are the challenges that Alice's face, Alice faces. But we added a second column, and that was Alice's impact on who? Everybody, right? Your Alice, your neighbor, your community. Right? So what does substandard housing mean? Not just for Alice, but for the community. And so we need you all, right, to, to go out and be advocates for Alice and tell the stories, not so much that, that first column, but tell your neighbors, tell your relatives about that second column, about how your taxes are influenced or impacted because of the challenges Alice faces, or how health insurance premiums are impacted because of the challenge Alice, is, Alice faces and their family faces. So number one, it starts with us, that we have to be advocates for Alice. Great, thank you, Bill. Your thoughts, one thing. Believe in the possibilities, because- um, That's small. But the, <laughs> the neuroscience tells us that if you believe in the possibilities, it actually restructures the brain in a way that you can see the weak signals as they emerge. The future is now. You know, if you could go back into the 1980s, 1970s, you, know, you could have seen Atari, and you could have guessed that, well, technology would be advancing in a direction that you could have started investing and in making, making movements towards that future now. Right? So you need to believe in the possibilities, and you have to have the courage to let go of the status quo and get up from the chair and move towards that, that future. And each and every one of us, we do a lot of, well, when they innovate and they come and show us what we could do, each and every one of us can get out and participate in pulling Alice up. There's a lot of community-based organizations that would be more than happy to have people come and, and help, and, and really getting back to community. Each and every one of us really being there for each other in, in, in ways that can make a big difference because when Alice suffers, we really do all suffer. Yeah, as Bill said. The final word? My final word is Good, a specific idea. A very specific idea, which is uh, Alice uh, needs to be on that Future of Work Commission that was just announced. Uh, inclusive planning is a key aspect of how it is that we can actually shape our policies and bring in that reimagination of the, the, policy, uh, the possibilities. And so I know the governor has announced, I think, October 5th, Future of Work Commission. I know we have the Labor Commissioner in the House, so I'm literally talking in his general direction. Uh, but really, for anyone who is uh, in the room, uh, if you're an investor, uh, please look at the investing in the future, not only from the exciting possibilities of the profitability and the returns that exist in exponential technologies, but really, truly investing in the future that actually makes us well. If a few of us are on top of a hill with very healthy bank accounts, when the future comes knocking in a way that is not healthy for any of us, it won't matter. And so make your money work for you. Create, dream, dream up the future and invest in it. And today you can do that 
with more allies across so many sectors, with more Alice's, that E at the end of Alice not only stands for the fact that she's employed or he's employed, but they're also employers. They're working employers of the future. And so let's invest in them as much as we're investing in our technological evolutions. Let's do the inclusive planning. Let's make the future of work truly a different story than the ways our economies have grown over the past many centuries of the species, which has not been a very okay way. So let's make it okay now. Awesome, thank you. Thank you very much. Even this uh, cynical reporter is getting a little inspired here. So, <laughs> but thank you very much. Um, I think John, are you going to say some final words? But I want to thank the panel especially. Okay. Yeah, I'll stay. You see what's happening here? This is New Jersey. This is where it's all beginning. 10 years ago, we started this initiative called the Alice Project. The United Ways of New Jersey got together and did something about it. What I learned in college was the first thing you have to do is identify the problem. We now have more data and good narrative to understand how to develop legislation, develop strategies to get involved and make a difference. You heard the positive remarks from our panelists. Thank you very much. Great panelists, wouldn't you say? So it starts here with good information, but for it to go forward, for us to continue our leadership in this area, we have to act. And I'm proud to say that uh, Barry Ostrowski, my new best friend, the CEO at uh, this hospital, has decided to engage United Way in a project to identify ways to help Alice, not just the patients, but the employees, because I don't know how many employees they have, but the intent here is to make life better for Alice. We can all do something and the challenge is ours. Think about what, they're, United Way people stand up. If you're with United Way, either a board chair or a volunteer or a staff member, stand up, United Way. <clears throat> These people are ready to lead a conversation in your community about how to make life better for Alice. They don't have all the answers, nobody has all the answers, but there are, there's good information now, there's a narrative we can use, and there are people who are committed to this. So reach out to your United Ways, reach out to your fellow colleagues to find ways to do this. So the last thing I want to do is say thank you. First to John Mooney, our partner in this project. <laughs> to our fantastic panelists, Dr. Carol Ash. <laughs> Alpha Demolish. Dr. Bill Rogers, Senator Sweeney, Speaker Coughlin, I think he might still even be here, and Micheline Davis, my good friend here at the hospital. And there's one more person I want to acknowledge, Andrea Conway. Without Andrea, the Alice Project would never have gone anywhere. Stand up out, Andrea. Andrea and the marketing team have really put a face on Alice and made this possible. And lastly, thank you all for being here this evening. We have a great opportunity before us. New Jersey can be at the lead, not just in disseminating information and telling the story, but in making a difference.
developing ideas, developing projects, developing initiatives to really make a difference for Alice. Go New Jersey. We hope you enjoyed this special program from United Ways of New Jersey and NJ Spotlight. For more information on the ALICE initiative, visit unitedway.org. And for information on upcoming NJ Spotlight roundtables and other programs, visit njspotlight.org. We produce this program in the studios of State Broadcast News in Cherry Hill. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.